This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we hear from a New Zealand journalist in the US who's turned an old media form, the newsletter, into a new way for other journalists to make a living from their work online. A kind of a support structure needs to be established around these writers to help them in the absence of newsrooms or other organisations that might have existed in the past. That's Hamish McKenzie telling Jeremy Rose all about Substack, a new publishing venture that's pulled in millions from venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. But first, in the US and in the UK and in Australia in recent times, elections have been won and lost by narrow margins amid claims that voters were influenced by ads injected straight into their social media by political parties. And our media are now warning of an oncoming onslaught of online political party ads. It, it just didn't work for me because my whole social network is on Facebook and is on Instagram, which Facebook bought, and is on WhatsApp, which Facebook bought. Um, so I was really finding that I wasn't often able to find an alternative for these services. So it became both about their dominance, but also whether we can you know, control the flow of our own information. That was New York Times technology correspondent Kashmir Hill on RNZ's 9 to noon last Tuesday talking about her experiment to show just how much the tech giants control the digital world we interact with. Going cold turkey on big tech convinced Kashmir Hill the pervasive presence of those companies' products has been messing up her life personally. Meanwhile, others overseas have been warning they've also been messing up our democracy. Because it's not just in the US that the reach of platforms such as Facebook make it ideal for anyone who wants to reach people with political messages, many of which are misleading. I honestly never thought I would be campaigning here in the UK to establish the primacy of truth. If we are going to be asked to cast our vote on the basis of lies, then democracy is in trouble. Hang on a minute. Did that already happen? It was Dorothy Byrne, the head of news at the UK broadcaster Channel 4, speaking last weekend to the great and good of the British media at the annual McTaggart Lecture in Edinburgh. Dorothy Byrne went on to say she genuinely fears now that in the next UK election there will be too little proper democratic debate and scrutiny to enable voters to make informed decisions. And she said that's partly because politicians now routinely bypass the news media and the possibility of scrutiny to send messages directly to people via social media. Now, these messages are targeted at specific citizens according to what their digital data says about them. Carol Cadwallader is the journalist who exposed how British political consultancy Cambridge Analytica illegally harvested the personal data of millions of Facebook users for political advertising. And she was on RNZ National last Sunday speaking in even stronger terms about social media as a threat to democracy. And it is not about left or right or leave or remain or Trump or not. It's about whether it's actually possible to have a free and fair election ever again. Because as it stands, I don't think it is. In the US and the UK, they've had highly controversial public votes in recent years, won by narrow margins, in which voters were influenced by misinformation injected straight into their social media feeds by third parties and even other countries who paid online platforms like Facebook a fortune to do it. As soon as he got the job as leader last month, Boris Johnson and his party poured content and money into more than 500 Facebook ads linked to a survey on the Conservative Party website where people were asked for their names, postcodes and email addresses, which were all likely to end up in a database for future election campaign advertising. 
Now here, both Labour and National have already copied the big British political party's tactics in the past, as Media Watch discovered three years ago. And shortly, we'll be asking if all this could be coming to an election near you in 2020. But first, some journalists have been warning us all this past week we should look at what happened in an election closer to home this year. Australia's recent election campaign had more aggressively targeted online ads in it than ever before. And last month, Stuff Political reporter Thomas Coughlin reported that National thinks it's got a winning formula from its counterparts across the Tasman. Sources within the party say Bridges' meeting in Sydney in July with Australian PM Scott Morrison changed the party's political messaging to be closer to that which brought Morrison victory in May. They think Morrison's formula of near-constant mini-video ads helped secure the embattled Liberals an unlikely return to power. And last weekend, Stuff Political reporter Henry Cook reported that our political parties are already running many more Facebook ads than usual. At one point recently, he said, National had 14 ads running at once, including a campaign against Associate Transport Minister Julianne Genta and her proposal to make electric vehicles cheaper and gas guzzlers more costly in the future. Now, these ads echoed Liberal Party ones in the Australian election, which claimed, falsely as it turned out, the Australian Labour Party was going to tax your ute, and two of those National Party ads here will be investigated by the Advertising Standards Authority for being potentially misleading. Now, the governing parties are into this stuff online as well. Labour personally criticised the National Party leader's commitment to climate change in an online ad campaign of its own, and last Tuesday, Stuff reporter Henry Cook asked Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern if we now need to brace for many more negative political online ads. I withhold my judgment yet on uh, whether or not we'll see some of the practices from overseas in New Zealand, but I think the general public in New Zealand like to see politics done um, in a in a way that's clean. And that's not an answer that's a commitment to a clean online campaign. TVNZ's Q&A show last Monday said they were convinced it was going to get dirty. With a year to go before our general election, political observers are warning voters to prepare for some dirty politics. The battle for votes is increasingly being fought online. And we've discovered New Zealanders are already being targeted with some of the less than transparent tactics seen overseas. Here's Fena Owen. Like never before, National is churning out the attack ads on social media. Already, its campaign machine is in full throttle. They've probably made the calculation they're not going to win by going positive. Later, Q&A asked the National Party election campaign manager Paula Bennett if her party is micro-targeting ads like Scott Morrison's Liberals and their Kiwi strategists across the Tasman. As people know, we've been um, talking to the Liberals about their campaign that was incredibly effective. Um, you know, uh, not, not everything's original in politics. And Q&A's report wound up with lobbyist Thomas Pryor again warning us all to be extra sceptical next year. It's really contingent upon all of us as voters to be, to be cautious, actually, and to realise that, that you know, information we see online cannot necessarily be trusted. This election in particular is going to be at the forefront, and, um, and we're all going to have to you know, approach with care. In the Stuff Papers last weekend, reporter Henry Cook pointed out that misleading political ads can go out on Facebook and then finish their run long before a regulator like the Advertising Standards Authority can even assess it. But he also said Facebook has a new transparency tool for political advertising, which is in use overseas, but none of our parties have signed up to it yet. 
The Ad Library Report is mandatory in several countries during election campaigns and it allows the public to track every ad that a political party or issue group puts out on the platform. Now that tool has been available to our political party leaders since June but most of them reacted with surprise when Henry Cook asked them about it and one of those was Jacinda Ardern. Oh, well, we haven't made a decision not to. That's the first thing I'd say. In fact, I was just reading about the new policy over the weekend. I think it's, you know, a really uh, interesting idea. Um, what, at the moment, we're just looking at is how does that then interface with our, our, our current transparency rules? But we should absolutely look at it because I think the more that we can do to encourage transparency, that's a good thing. Another issue about the anticipated upswing of paid political ads in election year 2020 is that you will have helped pay for some of them. In 2017, the electoral law changed to allow political parties to spend more of their own money on online ads, as well as about three-quarters of a million dollars previously earmarked by the Electoral Commission for opening and closing addresses on TV and radio. At the time, politicians welcomed this, and the media, interestingly, broadly backed this move at the time as well. In an opinion piece last weekend for Stuff, political reporter Henry Cook said that stopping the kind of misinformation in those overseas elections is now a job for politicians, the regulators and the journalists together. I think we will definitely see a lot more online advertising with selection just because people have more knowledge of how the platforms work now um, and they're clearly very effective. People get very upset about ads very easily. I think, I think you have to kind of be clear what the difference is between misleading, like active misinformation stuff, and, and regular old political spin, which we might not like, but we can accept as a legitimate you know, political communication strategy. Sure, but we're already seeing, and you and other reporters have identified it, haven't you, a ramping up of online you know, several ads on one topic, variants of them popped out in social media on things like uh, the proposed policy on electric and, uh, and yeah. env- environmentally friendly vehicles. So that, that one's been a very big topic for the National Party, which is interesting because they haven't made it as much of a topic in, in the House or through kind of re- regular media channels. Um, but, which is, but this is the sort of thing we can expect, you think, from... All political parties as we move closer to an election? I mean, different different parties will have different advertising strategies. And being in government, you are naturally probably kind of less on the attack, usually. I think there'll be plenty of negative ads to, to go. Now, on the uh, Q&A show uh, this week's edition, uh, Matthew Hooten appeared as a pundit. He said, look, there's a lot of paranoia about this political advertising that's kind of economical with the truth because it's partisan. Um, isn't much different from, he said, look, at you know, some sort of party official or candidate attending a local meeting in, in public to give the party a boost. You know, has he got a point there? Um, meetings back in the day, you, you could, you know, A-B test a meeting within 20 minutes and then flooded out to hundreds of thousands of people in kind of geographically dis- disparate communities uh, qu- quite so quite so efficiently or quite quite know exactly how things were working quite so well. Meetings are also at some level somewhat more transparent. People know who's speaking when they see them in a meeting. Now you wrote in your piece, uh, media companies the world over have to take on some responsibility for the ads on their platforms. Facebook scales no excuse for it to avoid this completely. It doesn't have to vet Every ad as it comes in, you said, but it should be able to respond promptly to complaints about blatantly false advertising. But does anyone have the power to make Facebook or or any other platform do this as things stand? The Electoral Commission has oversight over basically whether you declare who you are properly. So if you put up an ad, um, you know, if Labour puts up an ad, if I don't say it's authorised by Jacinda Ardern, Parliament Buildings, Wellington, um, then the Electoral Commission 
uh, can legally, you know, get you to remove the ad, and and they can basically tell whoever is broadcasting it to do that. So they can they can tell Facebook to do that. Um, and Facebook has kind of relationships with them and of the um, Advertising Standards Authority. Although the Advertising Standards Authority don't actually have any kind of literal legal power to force ads to be taken down. Facebook really only pays serious attention to regulators in um, in the United States in terms of its overall behaviour, but it will attempt to. Uh, meet local regulations where it's not too troublesome for them. And Mark Zuckerberg, in fact, wants to be regulated on this. He doesn't want to be into the messy business of telling truth from fact in political advertising. He wants a regulator to tell him what to do, and then he'll be happy to do it, basically. Um, I think that's a bit of an application of responsibility. I mean, you know, we run political ads in, in our newspapers and our website, uh, but if someone called up, um, you know, the Don Post and said they wanted to run an ad that said um, uh, something that was just blatantly false we would not run it or would query it at least. There is a level of responsibility that you take on as a publisher. I think if a user complains and says, hey, this ad is misleading, Facebook have a duty to have someone kind of look at the basic facts of it and say, this is wrong or oh, no, no, this is, you know, spin, but fine. Well, a couple of national uh, party ads about that fee-bait car policy are now actually being considered by the Advertising Standards Authority. Uh, recently, we had John Tamahiri, candidate for mm. Mayor of Auckland, had one of his ads... Uh, had to be taken off off the radio um, and other versions online, I think, because uh, it made false claims about policy of his his um, opponent. So how can the regulator, you think, respond in election campaign 2020 to the challenge of the short-run Facebook ad campaigns? It might only last a couple of days. They're gone before anyone can really react. I think speed is speed is key. Um, we shouldn't let misinformation kind of run rampant. Uh, and, and I think that the ASA did, did set up a, a rapid response team last time, and I think that's kind of tradition. The, the sad thing is 48 hours is, is too slow, often with online advertising. Um, 48 hours is kind of an eternity in an election. I, I think we, we, we can't rely too much on regulators, though. One reason is because we don't want to overdo it and regulate political speech. In a, in a serious way. I mean, if you're not lying, you should be able to say what you like about politics in New Zealand. So the best, but the best thing to do is, I mean, it's it's very old school. It's very um, kind of self-glorifying for media. But I think sunlight is the best disinfectant of the stuff. Journalists just need to watch what's going on here. They need to treat political advertising as a legitimate topic, a legitimate story. If they know the media are looking closely, I think the parties won't be as as rough. Well, in 2017, Henry, um, electoral law changed, and that allowed political parties to spend more of their own money on online ads, but also sums that have been allocated to uh, the broadcast of those opening and closing addresses, that's now um, been made available to the parties to, to do their own advertising. The media said that's a good idea. They didn't think the addresses were great. The political parties didn't want them either. But have we then arrived at a situation where the public is now kind of subsidising or funding this form of Facebook advertising for the parties to spend where... It's not open to the same scrutiny as a as a broadcast, and actually, these potentially dodgy and election swinging ads, such as we've seen overseas, we're actually bankrolling them more than we were before. Yes, there will be probably some money from the taxpayer going to these Facebook ads. I guess the, the corollary to that, the, the you know, the opposite of that is that we have not none of taxpayer funding, and then the parties that get the most donors are best able to exploit this stuff. Um, they they already are at some to some degree, but. Yeah, but if, if uh, the public's paying for it, does that put an extra onus, in your opinion, on the parties to not misuse that by, by trying to put out messages and basically get away with a short-run campaign that they can't be held accountable for because 
of the nature and form of this platform, specifically it's, Facebook. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, that would be, I guess, a question for there's a, there's a just the Justice Select Committee. I think they're on their, their very long run, very troubled um, uh, inquiry into the last election. That would be an, an interesting question for them to get into on this. I would want to leave it to Parliament to decide whether they can kind of legislate how parties should use that money. One of the tr- tricky things there is that the parties could probably say, oh, no, no, we were spending our donor money on the Facebook stuff. We, we, were, we know that the public money all went to the very, very traditional campaigns. That was Henry Cook, a political reporter for Stuff in the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Well, as Henry mentioned there, the outfit that deals with complaints about election advertising in the non-broadcast media is the Advertising Standards Authority. For the last election, the ASA ran a fast-track process during the campaign period, which required a response from the advertiser and any other relevant party within 24 hours of a complaint being received. Most of those complaints, the ASA says, were settled within three or four days, and the authority told MediaWatch this week that arrangements for next year's election have yet to be determined. Meanwhile, Parliament's Justice and Electoral Select Committee is still running an official inquiry into the 2017 election. Earlier this year, it asked for submissions on how New Zealand can protect its democracy from inappropriate foreign interference, including the risk that political social media campaigns could be driven by what it called external entities. In its submission, the GCSB said it found no evidence of that in 2017, but it noted that New Zealanders online are highly likely to encounter international disinformation campaigns. This would most likely impact, says the GCSB, on domestic debates fuelled by distrust of authority and facts. Clearly something to keep an eye out for in 2020. Well, as we heard there, social media is being used these days as an avenue for misleading political messages, which aren't easy to counter. But would democracy and journalism be better served by a social media model that doesn't depend on either advertising or harvesting your precious data to survive and prosper? It sounds nice, but highly unlikely to make a buck. But, as Jeremy Rose now reports, a startup in the US called Substack, which includes a Kiwi journalist among its founders, recently raised more than 15 million US dollars in venture capital on just that premise. You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunks myths and misinformation taught in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have a very special guest, her name is Katarina Piovic, and she is running to be the president of Croatia from the Workers' Party. I came across the Historically podcast a few weeks back when I was looking for information about candidates in the upcoming Croatian elections, as you do, and that interview was the only Google hit in English for Katarina Piovic. But what really caught my attention was this. Hey, this is Hamish McKenzie. I'm one of the founders of Substack, which is the platform that hosts the Historically podcast and newsletter. And Historically is funded purely through subscriptions. So people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters. And that will keep Historically totally independent and uncompromised. That unmistakable Kiwi accent had me searching the vaguely familiar name Hamish McKenzie. I soon realised I'd heard him interviewed by Kim Hill last year about the book Insane Mode, how Elon Musk's Tesla sparked an electric revolution to end the age of oil. So what is Substack? Well, the New York Times headlined its story, the new social network that isn't new at all, and journalist Mike Isaac began the story like this. My favourite new social network doesn't incessantly spam me with notifications. 
When I post, I'm not bombarded with mentions from bots and trolls, and after I use it, I don't worry about ads following me around the web. That's because my new social network is an email newsletter. Every week or so, I blast it out to a few thousand people who've signed up to read my musings. Some of them email back, occasionally leading to a thoughtful conversation. It's still early in the experiment, but I think I love it. I Skyped Hamish McKenzie at home in San Francisco recently and began by asking him to give the elevator pitch that convinced investors to fork out nearly 24 million New Zealand dollars in venture capital. Substack is a subscription publishing platform and basically we just make it simple for a writer to start a paid newsletter. We say newsletter because that's simple but really it's kind of like a personal media empire where a writer can have like a blog that's attached to a mailing list and they could also if they want distribute podcasts through their Substack and host discussion threads and that's kind of the start of it uh, but there'll be a lot more later and the whole thing is monetized for writers with subscriptions instead of advertising or any other model and we think that subscriptions is is a better way forward for the media. I mean when it's been written up and it's been written up all over the place New York Times, Forbes, Vanity Fair, they all describe it as an email service, like it's the return of email. Is that simply because you're alerted to the content by email? It's not only that you're alerted to the content by email, you can actually read all the content in your email. We think that email is like the best distribution method for content. Uh, It's nice and quiet. It's away from social media. It's a place where you, as the reader, can have your entire focus directed at that content. And it's kind of completionist in a way that writers can be sure that all their work will get in front of the people who want to see it rather than being left up to the kind of the winds and whims of social media like Twitter or Facebook where you don't know if people who follow you are going to see everything you publish. You recently launched a venture capital fundraising project. I think you raised... 15.3 million US dollars. What are people investing in? Yeah, we raised $15.3 million from Andreessen Horowitz, which is a great venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, one of the best. And that was on top of $2.2 million that we raised coming out of Y Combinator, which is an accelerator last year. And people are investing in the potential for the Substack model and the Substack ecosystem the network of writers who are monetizing through subscriptions to become something absolutely giant. That's what investors are interested in, that there's just a small chance of that happening at least. Um, And it's our job to work as hard as possible to make that a possibility. So they see see a, a big opportunity here for media to kind of, the media business model to kind of be reinvented. One of the success stories which is often quoted is Bill Bishop's Sinicism, a newsletter on China. And I think he produced that well before he became a Substack user. What did you do for him? Why has it been so successful? We just let him get paid by the readers who wanted to pay him. That was basically it. Bill was already uh, publishing a great newsletter. He'd been doing it for five years he had built up a mailing list of about 35,000 people, and many of those people were absolutely devoted to this newsletter because it helped them do their jobs better. He translated the important news of the day about China for an English-speaking audience, essentially. And 
Uh, over the years, he'd run a couple of donation drives that hadn't really amounted to much. He wasn't truly making an income from his newsletter. And we just said, come be our first customer on Substack. Um, we'll make it simple for you to do this paid subscription play. And then uh, he came and agreed. And on his first day with paid subscriptions, he got to six figures of revenue. And the essential thing that was key to his success there was that there was this pent-up demand of people who wanted to support him but really didn't have a good ongoing way to do that before paid subscriptions were introduced. And I imagine quite a lot of people with a lot at stake who are interested in China, so in a, in a very big country, so having those sorts of numbers doesn't seem surprising if you're producing a really good newsletter, very good content. But you've also recently made a push for kind of hyper-local news as a way of dealing with the death of local coverage. How does that work? You know, in a small community, a reporter covering local bodies and things, can they also make a living out of it? Yes, they can. There's, it, we've, we've proven that this model can work for independent writers. So an individual who's writing about an area that they have authority in and covering it deeply and from an informed position, they will, if they're good, attract an audience that will be increasingly devoted to them as long as they keep doing good work. And some portion of that audience will be willing to pay to support that good work. So we've, we've seen that it can work in things like writing about China or writing about cryptocurrency or bankruptcy or even like comedy, Victorian literature riffs, as Daniel Ortberg does, for instance. But we also believe strongly that it can work for local news. We're just starting to see the green shoots of this with publications that are covering like business news in Charlotte, North Carolina, for example, or City Hall in Toronto, where there doesn't need to be a massive infrastructure that supports reporters in a locale, but one person can pick a beat and dedicate themselves to that beat, build an audience, and then that audience over time, if they find it valuable, some of them will pay. And the numbers don't have to be huge to support one person. If you have a few hundred subscribers, for instance, paying $5 a month, $50 a year, that can pretty quickly add up to meaningful revenue. And if you have thousands of people paying that amount of money, then you're actually, you've got a good full-time living. You don't have to reach millions like you do in this uh, current BuzzFeed-dominated uh, traffic era of the internet. But a good, dedicated, small audience can be enough to make a meaningful living. So you mentioned the Charlotte Ledger business newsletter there, and I had a look at that, and the story was about a new school being opened. So it really is pretty hyper-local kind of news. Is the author of that blog making a living? At the moment, that author is investing in his local news business. He hasn't actually turned on the paid subscriptions yet, so he's putting himself in the position to do that. But like any kind of media business, it does require some investment period. It's not just going to turn on money by magic. So you do have to be good. You do have to put a lot of energy into it, and you do have to put some um, upfront investment in it, even if that's just your time. You recently offered, you know, when you did a push for people to try and start up these local news reporting sites, you said that you would spend half an hour with them, mentoring them. Did many people take you up on that? Yeah, a bunch of people taking me up on that, and a bunch of people from organisations that are also concerned about local news and want to help some lawyers, some local news nonprofits. So ha having a lot of productive conversations around that, around that front. 
And that's kind of based on the realization that you can't just be a writer and like write words and hope that that's enough and, you know, use the Substack publishing tool and that's enough. For some people it can be, but there are going to be others who are doing more hardcore reporting who need kind of access to legal resources and editorial support. And uh, health insurance is, is a big thing in the United States because you don't get nationalized health care. And uh, that means that a kind of a support structure needs to be established around these writers to help them in the absence of newsrooms or other organizations that might have existed in the past. And you were proposing to do that, to have legal and health services available? We definitely want to play a role in that. I don't know what form it's ultimately going to take, but Substack will be involved in trying to figure out what the solutions are. And, you know, that could range from anything like partnering with organizations that can provide easy access to healthcare to perhaps setting up a legal entity or partnering with a legal entity that can provide a discount or free legal advice, that sort of thing. So we're in conversations with people to see what we can do on that front. And did any New Zealanders get in touch about that hyperlocal news idea? No, none did actually. And I hope they do. I think there's plenty of potential in New Zealand and uh, yeah, there's nothing There's nothing to prevent New Zealanders using Substack and making money from it. Uh, we serve that market pretty nicely, I think. So give us some figures. How, how many people are using it? How many paid subscribers? There's thousands of newsletters, thousands of publications, uh, and across the network there are more than 50,000 paying subscribers to these writers. So uh, yeah, those are the top-line figures, and we're pretty happy with the progress so far. And have you got one? <laughs> I have got one, uh, but I, I don't have much time to do anything with it. I'm spending most of my life either focusing on the company or focusing on my uh, two-year-old. <laughs> uh, but yes, I, I do have one in kind of a partial state. Can you nominate just two or three Substack newsletters that you think are particularly good? A really fun one worth checking out is Ask Molly. It's askmolly.substack.com. That's written by a woman named Heather Havrileski. She's a great essayist and a humor writer, and she also writes an advice column for New York magazine called Ask Polly, which is about helping people deal with difficult problems and being in touch with their feelings, etc. She started Ask Molly as... Polly's evil alter ego. And so she dishes out this kind of acerbic advice on how to deal with marriage and how to get by with your lame uh, boyfriends and deal with exes, that sort of stuff. I think it's hilarious. It's brilliant writing. Another one that's really interesting, if you're interested in US politics, which everyone kind of has to be at the moment, is Popular Information. It's popular.info. And that is by a guy named Judd Lagum, who was formerly the editor-in-chief of Think Progress. And he writes a four times a week newsletter where he does research-driven analysis and sometimes gets scoops about important political news in the US. He's very dedicated and he's doing very well and I think it's worth checking him out. When I came across this and I came across your voice in the midst of a podcast <laughs> I was listening to, and when yeah. I got in touch, you knew instantly which blog I was talking about. Do you have a kind of personal relationship with a large number of these newsletter writers? My job in the company is to understand the world of writers, go out and attract as many writers as I can to Substack and then help them succeed on the platform. So yes, I have a pretty close relationship with many, many, many writers now who are using Substack and all of the top people who are making the most money I know. And it's, it's 
a wonderful experience because I get to spend all this time with high quality writers and develop these uh, quite trusted relationships with them, which is really essential to the success of Substack because we need writers to trust us so uh, that we can succeed. That was Kiwi journalist and co-founder of the online publishing platform Substack, Hamish McKenzie, speaking there to Jeremy Rose. And you can hear more about the platform and more from Hamish in the online version of the story on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or the RNZ app. And there are a few local journalists here already taking advantage of this email-based social media platform. Political commentator, lawyer and blogger Morgan Godfrey, for example, has around 130 paying subscribers for his substack, Maui Street. Journalist David Cohen's Middle Feast is dedicated to Middle East cuisine and tech writer Richard McManus posts to paying subscribers on substack three times a week. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, you don't see much of regional New Zealand on TV these days. There are exceptions like Country Calendar, but the focus of most of our news, drama and comedy these days is Metropolitan, and it zeroes in on one metropolis in particular. But there is a new comedy show by a Nelson-born comedian who leaves his home in Auckland to visit New Zealand's smaller towns. For eight weeks, I'm travelling the country meeting real Kiwis and going to the places no one else wants to go, like Invercargill and Auckland. I'm volunteer journalist Guy Williams, and this is New Zealand Today. Comedy correspondent Guy Williams is pretty funny in New Zealand Today, which screens on Friday nights on 3. Here's what the spin-off's editor Duncan Grieve made of last week's first episode. The show is less Williams himself than what he draws out of those he encounters. Contrary to some rumours, New Zealanders are funny as hell. Duncan Grieve also said it's a little uncomfortable at times and he wasn't wrong there either. Some of the oddballs who are happy to be on camera with Guy Williams end up looking a bit daft on the screen. Indeed, Guy Williams discussed this very thing with one of them in the first episode of New Zealand Today, confessing to a woman in Hawara called Jean that he really was taking the mickey. Come here laugh at some people in Hawara, leave. Do you have the right to do that? I did a six-month comedy diploma in um, Tauranga School for the Performing Arts and Comedy. Yeah? yeah. so I've got like a diploma, like a certificate. But again, what gives you the right? Diploma in comedy. No, no, that. forget the diploma. I was actually lying about the diploma. I didn't, I didn't actually have a diploma. I printed that off the internet. You're not a fraud guy. Well, I am a fraud. I literally you, did you, some fraud. OK, you frauded that. I'm probably going to face a lawsuit from the Tauranga New Zealand School of Comedy. You've got to stand up and be authentic. But while Guy Williams was playing the part of the flawed and fraudulent correspondent there, he did own up to some more plausible-sounding skullduggery last month as a guest on News Talk ZB's Real Life Show. It's Real Life with John Cowan on News Talk ZB. ZB host John Cowan asked Guy Williams about an early breakthrough of his, a parody of Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth documentary, for which he and his brother won the Outlook for Someday Sustainability Film Challenge for Young People back in 2007. And then my brother made the video and then made about 500 fake email addresses. I don't know if I've ever told anyone this before. This is, this is bad, children. Don't do this. We made 500 fake email addresses, voted for ourselves like 500 times, and ended up winning the competition. So we rigged the competition. Oh dear. And if a New Zealand school of comedy in Tauranga really did exist and had issued Guy Williams a diploma in comedy, they might just be asking for it back. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then we're back again at the same time next Sunday for Media Watch, here 
on RNZ National.